Well, welcome to another edition of After Hours with me, Rick Hogan. It is a, a full show that begins with a writer, middles with a writer, and then will end with a rock and roller. So that's a typically, I think, eclectic uh, <laughs> Rick Hogan show. Uh, my first guest, uh, who is on the phone from, uh, hey, Joya Diliberto, where are you living now? In Connecticut. Let me ask you, before we get into your latest book, and I, I am beguiled by Coco at the Ritz, I must tell you. I'm a big fan of yours. Oh, thank you. You, you know thank that, you. but I'm beguiled Thanks. by this book. Uh, thank you. Your husband, a dear friend of mine and a grand talent, uh, Richard Babcock, the former editor of Chicago Magazine and a very good writer in his own right. Why did you leave me? Why did you guys leave me? I'm not sure. I really miss the city. I miss the pavement beneath my feet. I'm not sure why we left. Um, You'll have to ask Dick. Oh, it was all his decision? (laughs) Yeah, I I sure doubt that. Uh, Coco at the Ritz is uh, a kind of... What's the genre here, Joya Diliberto? Is it a novelization? Is it a novel based on the life and your imagination of uh, Coco Chanel? How do you, how do you, what? what? It's historical fiction. It's classic historical fiction. It's inspired by a real incident, the arrest and interrogation of Chanel at the end of World War II, towards the end of World War II. But it's, and I did a lot of research, but it's pretty much invention because so little is known. The record is so scant. Well, I know. I, I realize that reading the book, and I did, you know, the typical, you know, Wikipedia searching around for, right. for information and right. found nothing and said, how could something like this with a person so famous just be totally buried by history? Right. Well, one reason is that her arrest and interrogation, which only shows up as two sentences in the myriad books about Chanel. It wasn't official. If it had been an official court case, there would have been a record. Mm -hmm. But there were no records. Nobody, none of those guys in the FFI ever stepped forward, or their descendants never stepped forward and said, oh, yeah, my Uncle Harry was one of the people who interrogated Chanel. Nobody ever said anything. She never talked about it. And she paid people to keep her out of their memoirs. So it's really nothing was known. And for a long time, the Chanel company, actually the Chanel company still tries to ignore it. And people just didn't pay attention to it. In 2011, some classified documents were released and they had some information about Chanel's wartime activities, but it was very sketchy. And only then, at about 2011, did people start to talk about it a little bit. Did some of the biographies that came out after that include some information about it? But so there was so little that was known that it just gave me great latitude as a historical novelist. You know, in a, in a sense, it sort of says. Hey, Joya Diliberto, you're going to have to use your imagination. But also, when you're doing historical fiction, it, it is, I think, uh, for writers, some comfort to have a foundation of 
many details that you can then massage with your imagination. Was it at all daunting, Joya, or was it joyful? Well, I like the research, and I guess that's part of, that comes from my background as a reporter, starting out as a newspaper reporter. You know, I love to be nosy and get in other people's business. So I love doing the research and finding out those details, and you need details, you need a lot of details to bring something live on page, whether it's, well, you know, um, from being a writer yourself, that that's what really makes something come alive is those really um, specific details, great specificity of, of the material. And I, my first rule in writing historical fiction is to never contradict the known truth. So I never, mm. I never make anything up that I know is false, and I only invent in the interstitials where it's not known what happened. Coco Chanel was uh, appeared in one of your previous books, a collection, and yes. so obviously, yes. obviously, she's been with you for some time. What is it? That, I, mean, I, I could easily spend the next twenty minutes talking about why I'm fascinated with her and what <laughs> I find her compelling. But what was it about her that really grabbed you, Joy? That's a long time to spend with a real I person. I know. I know. Uh, you know, I just think she's one of the most fascinating characters of the early 20th century. She came from the grimmest of childhoods and managed yeah. to wedge herself into the world of celebrity and fame and artistic achievement in Paris. And she was part of the modernist movement, and she knew all those people like who were changing the arts after World War One, like Picasso mm-hmm. and uh, Jean Cocteau. She was clo- very close to Jean Cocteau and Stravinsky. She had an affair with Stravinsky. She would have liked to have had an affair with Picasso, but he was exact. She was exactly the kind of strong woman that Picasso avoided like a plague. Yes, but, um, yes. Not that Picasso but, was loath to have affairs, right. but yes, his strong women were not part of his scene. Right, right. But but then. Her behavior during World War II so tarnished her legacy, and that intrigued me also. And I just found her to be fascinating and complex and a symbol, in a way, for how France behaved during the war. Yeah, yeah. Line in the novel that says when when she says, "I am France" to the interrogator, Mm. and I had a lot of fun inventing that whole interrogation scene. Oh, I'll bet. I bet. Which, which, you know, who knows what happened during it? Who knows what they asked her? Who knows who they they were even? Except we do know that they were part of the FFI, the French Forces of the Interior which were part of this loose band of citizens and ex-soldiers who were taking up arms in the wake of the liberation of Paris and going around the country, seizing women who slept with Germans, <clears throat> excuse me, or sometimes just were rumored to have slept with Germans and shaving their heads and beating them up oh, and yeah. throwing them into yeah. prison and, and so on. So, um, and, and that fascinated me also, you know, who were these guys who actually went to the Ritz and hauled away the most famous woman in Paris. And what happened? And so I envisioned it as this 
battle of wits between the famously acerbic Chanel and an interrogator who could have cared less about fashion and who she was. Yeah, wonder Coco at the Ritz is the name of the novel. It is a Joya uh, Diliberto's reimagining portions of the life of the one and only Coco Chanel. We'll take a little short little commercial break. Do use this time, Joya, to go hug your husband for me because... Uh, <laughs> Because Richard Vavgaug is one of my favorite people on the face of the planet. And we'll talk about who Coco Chanel was living with at the Ritz. Uh, he was, I can't remember offhand, 13 years younger, 15 years younger than yes, she? 13, and, 13 years younger than she. And to keep you uh, tuned in, and a Nazi. We'll be back in a couple minutes. Welcome back to After Hours with me, Rick Hogan. I have on the phone my uh, old friend, Joya Diliberto, whose latest book is a novel. Historical fiction is what you, if you have to label it, that's what you label it. Coco at the Ritz. It is a beguiling, uh, exciting, and altogether pleasing novel uh it per you know what i think it's I, I don't, i'm not a big beach reader but this is a perfect beach read joya i have in the studio with me and if i've done my job correctly i think i have actually her name is sandy colbert she's a board member of the chicago writers association she's on later in the show and when we finished our first segment all she said was i have to buy that book yes what is it sandy that appealed to you about that um, first of all, Coco Chanel, and the fact that my big question actually is, with all the attempts to bury this story, how did you find it? Huh. Good question. Well, I did a lot of digging in the archives. I read every book that had ever been written about Chanel, mm. and where I couldn't find any information, I used my imagination, as in the long interrogation scene at the end of the book and the arrest that opens the novel. There are only about four things that are known about it, and I, I used those four things and kind of went, went on from there. What did you, the, the other uh, main character, if I can put it that way, in the book is, he fascinates me too, Hans Gunther von Drinklage, yes. is a, a German spy, 13 years younger than Coco Chanel. This is not a, a <laughs> this is not a conventional love affair, is it? No, Chanel didn't have conventional love affairs, but she was never without a man. And he was very handsome. He had lived in Paris for most of his adult life. He spoke fluent French. She didn't wear a uniform. It was easy for her to convince herself that he wasn't really a Nazi. And in fact, who knows how much of a Nazi he really was. Certainly he belonged to the Nazi party, but he was part of the Abwehr, which of course worked with the SS, but it wasn't the SS. And indeed his boss, Wilhelm Canaris was part of the plot to assassinate Hitler mm -hmm. and was himself beheaded by Hitler. Mm. So there there were around spots a lot of Nazi officers who were anti-Hitler and indeed plotting to get rid of Hitler. We do not know uh, what Spots' beliefs were. We don't. We do not know how much on board he was with Nazi ideology. Indeed, we don't know how much Chanel believed 
and Nazi ideology, if she did at all. I, I personally don't think she did. I think she was an opportunist above mm-hmm. all, and I think it was mm-hmm. weakness more than wickedness that drew her into the arms of Spatz. It, she did a lot of worse things during World War II than fall in love with him, and I talk about them, I write about them in my novel, a lot of things that were that were far worse. And for, I think for, exa- for, for example, Joya. Well, the, one of the worst things she did was she went to the Gestapo and denounced her Jewish yep. partners mm-hmm. um, and tried to use the fact that they had fled for their lives huh. to New York um, as a way of getting back full control of her perfume company. Well, the, fun, the great thing about awful. the great thing for me was learning that she was unable to do that, that these these right. men were able to circumvent her her evil intentions. Yes. Right. And they the quid pro quo was they had transferred their shares. They had 80 percent of the shares of the Chanel perfume company, which was what was making them rich. Her, too. And they had transferred it to an Aryan businessman who was making planes for the Germans. And so the quid pro quo was that they that the Aryan businessman, his name was Felix Amio, that he would return the shares to the Wertheimer brothers, that was their name. The, their grandson still owned Chanel, and they're worth billions of dollars. They would return the shares to the Wertheimers, he would return the shares to the Wertheimers after the war, and they would vouch for him, because he was liable to be accused of a collaborator himself for making planes for and, and boats for the Germans. So, you know, nobody comes out smelling like a rose here yeah. or smelling like Chanel number no. five. What you have is the Jewish Wertheimers collaborating with the collaborator. And that was one of the things I wanted to explore in my novel was the ambiguities of wartime morality. Things are rarely black and white. Things are always nuanced and much more complicated and complex. Well, that, that to me first. is what gives, the, what gives your novel a, a marvelous complexity. It is not simply a story of uh, <laughs> undeniably fascinating and I think I think devious woman and a strange love affair that she had there's so much more going on this whole era I remember your book I was so fond of your book Paris Without End which takes place certainly a little before that uh, the story of uh, Hemingway and his uh, first uh, first wife uh, what what is what about that era, Joya Diliberto has has so captured you? Well, it was the birth of modernism for mm-hmm. one, and um, everything was changing. The old order was falling away, and every and a new order was being put in place in the arts and in society, and it was just an explosive, exciting time in every area of life and in paris the occupation really fascinated me because it offers such a stark contrast between good and evil yeah and you can really you know you can really see and we all wonder what we would have done how we would have behaved um but but it's as i said it's just always much more complicated than you first think. I think it was the poet André Gide who said that most people were like, during the occupation, were like old shoes floating through murky waters just trying to stay afloat. Mm. 
few mm. people were heroes of resistance or villains of collaboration. Most of them were like somewhere in the middle in that big gray area. Mm. Mm. Sandy, do you want to ask a question before you go out and buy the book? Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> what's kind of interesting, how is she not ostracized from society? I mean, with everything that was going on, was it just kept from the public? Because um, everything I've ever known about her, it seems like people embraced her and they embraced her product and her, per- her perfume. Right. And, of course, this whole thing raises the issue of how we should think about her today, especially mm-hmm. in terms of today's cancel culture. Um, actually, she left Paris after the interrogation, as she does in my novel. She flees, and she lives in Switzerland in exile for 10 years. And it was only when Pierre Wertheimer was getting worried because Perfume sales were flagging, and also Chanel was producing her own rival perfumes from Switzerland and bad-mouthing Chanel Number no. 5, which was the cash cow for them all, sure. including herself. And he couldn't have that, and he also couldn't risk the press writing about how she behaved during the war. So he had to smooth everything over. So he told her, he went to see her in Switzerland, and he told her, look, I'll give you what you want, just Stop saying terrible things about Chanel Number no. 5. Stop <laughs> producing rival perfumes yourself. What do you want? And what she wanted was to go back to Paris and get back into fashion. She had closed her ateliers in 1939 on the eve of war, and no one really knows why she did that. So there had not been any Chanel fashion for 14 years, and she wanted to get going again. She was 71, but she wasn't going to let that stop her. And so he said, all right, I'll bankroll that. And she said, and I also want you to pay my taxes, and I also want you to pay my bill at the Ritz Hotel where she had a suite and slept every night. So that was why she was able to go back to Paris and reopen her ateliers and start designing again. But her first collection in 1954 was actually panned by the French press. Mm. But in America, she was revered as this, you know, icon of fashion and style and her return to fashion was hailed as like the second coming of the fashion messiah because we in America did not know about her personal life. We didn't know how she behaved during the war, but the French did. But after a certain amount of time, the French kindly kind of forgot about it, too. And the company has completely glossed over it. If you go to the Chanel website, there's a timeline of her life and the years of the war, are just a big fat blank. Well, that, and it's just not mentioned at all. That website, I doubt, is uh, promoting your book uh, either. Joy no. The book is Coco at the Ritz. Uh, we will talk a little if Joy can stay on the phone through the news. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that, and I also want to talk to her about uh, a, a book that she helped a famous lawyer write. So, Joy, if you can stay on it, because like, I reviewed that book. Sure. I reviewed it. It's called right. Watergate Girl. Right. Uh, right. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is the news. I will have all the information on how to get to Joya's uh, website on the thanks to uh, producer Andrew Harris on uh, the site for this show when you go back and listen to it again her latest book is coco at the ritz a historical novel that is uh 
that is inventive, compelling, exciting. And look at her other books, too. I mean, among my favorites, there are probably about six of them now, is Paris Without End, which anything about the young Hemingway intrigues me because I find him compelling, and we would not be friends. But I would have been friends with the focus of one of Joya's other books. A a Useful Woman is the story of Jane Addams, and Jane Addams has... uh, fascinated me ever since my father who was a noted writer and historian said that he loved jane adams and i'm going what about mom what about mom uh uh that's that's a a glorious glorious book joya watergate girl which is the story of jill wine banks uh you were the how do you say co-author how do you want to put the ghost writer uh what kind of challenge was that for you uh, well, it was a wonderful, intense, deep dive into Watergate. Uh, ask me anything about Watergate. Um, well, with one of the is... principles of Watergate, too. Uh, yeah. You, obviously, um, you you had to do a lot of research. Uh, it wasn't just sitting with Jill and, and, and talking, right? Well, there was a very draconian deadline for that book because it had to come out before the 2020 election to capitalize on the fact that the Nixon presidency was resonating in the culture because of Trump. Yep. So I did as much research as time allowed, but I really had to write at a very serious pace to get to get it in in time to make the deadlines. Um, so, and um, Jill, I interviewed her extensively oh, sure. and sure. interviewed other people too, which was really interesting. I went, my son lives in California. And when I was visiting him one time, I went to La Jolla and spent the day with Alexander Butterfield, mm. Who was the Yo, who was yeah. the one who revealed about the yeah. that there was a tape system in the White House, and he was fantastic. He's you know ninety something now, but he's still driving a sports car, and he still does a mean Nixon imitation, which <laughs> I would had love, me in his I would love to see that. That that is, it's a wonderful book. I reviewed it for the Tribune. Uh, Joy, it's so nice to talk to you. It was so nice to read you again and uh, sort you, of reconnect in this in this relatively icy fashion. Do you ever come back? Do you guys ever come back to Chicago? Yes. Well, I'm going to be there next Wednesday. I'm doing an event at the Alliance Française. Mm-hmm. Um, if anybody is listening and wants to come it's at 6 30 and i'll be uh, talking about the book and there'll be a cocktail party afterwards so you can go to the alliance Frances website or my website and um, sign up if you're interested in coming i'd love to see you i may come over there joya thank you so much it's it. really it's really a great book and uh, i can't wait thank for you. you i can't wait for your next one and go give your Wonderful husband, a hug from me. I, I, miss, I miss him. Thank too. you. I miss him. Too. Thank you, Rick. Okay, Such a pleasure my pleasure. To talk thank, to you. thank you. Thanks. Thank you.